Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Music History Project. Oh, <laughs> <awful>. <laughs> Cheers proud. from the gallery. Uh, Thank you. Uh, that, that was, was great. <laughs> Today we're going to be talking about, you guessed it, Elvis. <laughs> Stay tuned and you're going to hear more. of the content you hear on this podcast as well as all of our other episodes comes from the NAM Oral History Program and our collection of over 3,000 video interviews. If you want to check out any of that, uh, make sure you visit our website, which is www.nam.org library. So January 8th uh, marks the 83rd anniversary of his birth, and we thought it might be fun, clever, and entertaining to pull together some uh, audio clips from the uh, NAM Oral History Program of those that uh, worked with him, knew him, and have an insight about his impact on American popular music. So should we go down the list and say everybody's name we're going to be hearing from? Do we want to alternate? That would be really exciting. Like, I say one name, Mike can say a name. Yeah, Dan I like that. I like name. saying a name here it's and there. Just, as long as I don't get stuck with a hard one, that's all that matters. Who wants to start? I'll start. The uh, first person we're going to hear from in just a few minutes is uh, uh, Elvis's uh, last drummer, Ronnie Tut. And we're also going to hear from Mike Ladd. And we're also going to hear from, and I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong, Herb Brockstein. Brockstein. See, I'm, I didn't I want that it. one, so I got that's why I jumped in there real quick. I always get the hard one. And then a couple of cats that worked with Elvis at the very beginning, uh, Scotty Moore and uh, DJ Fontana. And then we're also going to hear from James Burton. And a couple of uh, guys who worked with Elvis in the Nashville scene, Chip Young and Fred Foster. And we can't forget about Boots Randolph. Oh, man, my hero. Or one of our all-time best friends, Norbert Putnam who has been a huge help to us in the oral history program. So it'll be a delight to talk a little bit about him. And yes, I just said the word delight. <laughs> Is that today's word of the day? It might be. Frank DeVito, who also worked on drums with Elvis in the studios in Los Angeles, along with the recording engineer, Mike Moran. And just double checking our list here. That looks like all of them. Because we, we got James Burton, right? Yep. Okay. Then that's all of... All of the stellar cast that we're going to be hearing from today. It's quite the lineup. It really is. It's really exciting to uh, have a collection that has this depth of uh, insight. So uh, so let's get started. Oh, boy. So we broke down this podcast. Uh, it's going to be two parts. So we're going to do part one. That'll be airing. That's what you're listening to now. And then in two weeks, you're going to be hearing the follow-up. So that way you get a whole month of Elvis. And I vote, I don't know about Mike, I bet he's on board with this, that if we can stump Dan on trivia questions about Elvis. <laughs> I don't know, we get like lunch or something? We gotta get something, because that's, I mean, that's close to impossible. I, I, don't, I don't think we can do I'm that. I'm up for the challenge. Yeah. The first segment we're gonna talk about in our podcast is all about instruments, and mostly kind of focusing on uh, the instruments that were sold to Elvis, what he played, because I think a lot of people just assume guitar, because that's what you see him photographed in, and that's what you see him playing in videos and stuff like that but there's a lot more to it. And uh, another aspect that we're going to be covering as far as the instruments go is the uh, the gear that his musicians were playing. In fact, that might be a good place to start. Uh, we'll hear from Ron Tut now, uh, who 
was born in uh, Dallas, Texas in 1938 and has played drums with people like Neil Diamond, the Carpenters. He even had a stint with uh, Jerry Garcia for a bit, but it's probably best known for playing uh, behind Elvis uh, during uh, the tours of the early 1970s all the way through Elvis's passing in 1977. And this is a great little clip. It's actually also part of his own web clip on the NAMM website. Uh, when Ron's talking about this uh, incident he had with Elvis about his new Ludwig drum kit. I had been working with Ludwig uh, and they were developing a, a, a type, a new type of drum shell called Vistalite. And what it was was a clear sort of a plastic or polymer or I don't, I don't know what you technically call it, but it came in several different colors as well as clear. And uh, one of the things that they were going to try to promote was this rainbow set. And, and it, <laughs> it's hard to describe it, but as you go through the spectrum of the, of the rainbow, rainbow, it'd go two amber, two yellow, two orange, two red, two green, two blue, and, and then you know, the bass drums are another color. And so beautiful looking set, just absolutely gorgeous, you know, with eight toms and two bass drums. And so you can imagine all the color that it had, and yet it looked like Wonder Woman's uh, airplane, you know? <laughs> it was, you could see through the whole thing which has taken a big resurgence, particularly in Europe these days. Those Vistalite sets are really considered pretty uh, collectible. Hmm. And uh, however, they did have a downside, so th that's the point of my story. I got them in, I tuned them up best as I could. Opening night in Vegas, I play them, and I'd look, there again, we're constant contact on stage, and he's constantly giving me this strange look. And I'm like, what am I doing? What's going on? Something's not right. And at the end of the first show, I tap on my dressing room door. Elvis wants to see you. I thought, okay, well, we're going to get to the bottom of this and find out what's going on. I walk in there. He's pacing back and forth in his dressing room. And he didn't even want to look at me. He just, you know, he just pacing back and forth. Finally, he stops. And he breathes and he says, Ronnie, he says, do you like those new drums? And I said, well, Elvis, I think they're beautiful. I think they just look fantastic, but I think they sound terrible. He said, thank God, get rid of them. So he was so relieved that I, because he didn't like them either, but he didn't want to tell me he didn't like my drums. You know, he wanted me to hear it from me first. <laughs> so that says a lot about his personality, you know, and I respect it. We, we all had, and, and uh, sure enough, the next day I had, I had my other drums. He said, well, where's your other set? And I said, well, it went back to L.A. Can you get in here for tomorrow night? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so back to the good old maple shells. You know, he likes the warmth of those. So as someone who's not a drummer or in percussion or a music maker or anything cool like you two guys, uh, Mike, maybe you can answer this for me. What was the construction of the drum shells before they were playing around with this translucent idea? 
Well, the typical way to make drums is out of wood, as many people do still today. Um, all different kinds of wood. It all has um, different different tonal qualities um, depending on whether you use birch or babinga or maple or any kind of wood and uh, Ludwig started using um, acrylics to make these translucent drums and they definitely had a different sound um, a name that comes to mind John Bonham later years um, really made the Ludwig translucent drums famous um, he has a couple famous kits that are like that and um, they did have their own sound and I can I can understand someone not liking it as much as you know the original wood sounding drum so it's definitely more of a personal preference kind of thing yeah yeah, yeah. They, they i don't really know how to describe the sound um but personally i like it for some things um but i mean you could make the argument that different kinds of wood sound different which they do um so it's just another material of making drums well said well now that i have a full understanding of drums <laughs> i mean quiz me i'm sure i'll get it right um we're gonna hear from mike ladd next in his web clip which you can see the video of this same interview on our website so make sure you check it out if you're interested and he talks about his guitar shop and his custom guitar shop and is correct me if i'm wrong dan is this the one that's still or was across from Graceland or is still right. across from Graceland? Well, or? it's not there anymore. Uh, it was there during the uh, 70s, and Mike had a shop uh, downtown uh, Memphis and then moved it over to across the street from Graceland uh, where he was uh, buying, uh, selling, and also making guitars. And as a luthier, he was approached by Elvis to build a guitar, which is the uh, uh, segment of the interview we're going to hear next. Um, what isn't covered in this that I think is really interesting is just all the shenanigans that Mike got to see from his binoculars across the street in his shop, uh, watching Elvis on his snowmobile and things like that on the grounds at Graceland. Uh, that shop and all of the other uh, little knick-knack shops that were across the street are all gone now, and it now is a, uh, a very large auditorium complex that has a lot of souvenir shops. Uh, there's a movie theater. Uh, his two airplanes are there for view, along with a automobile uh, museum, and then all of his costumes and records and awards are also all available for people to see. Uh, so it's uh, quite a complex there now. But let's go back in time and talk a little bit uh, with uh, Mike Ladd. The first one was Memphis Music Center, then Mike Ladd's Guitar City. Okay. And then the last one was Mike Ladd's Custom Guitars. It was across the street from Elvis's house on, on Graceland. Was that, that was the last door. But the one, the, 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 what I wanted to do when we had the first one on Highland, I wanted to say, I, I, instead of having a, in those days you walked into a music store, there was a piano sitting there. And the guitars were hanging back on the walls or something, you know, whatever that he had, two or three models that you had to order. There was a music store in Memphis that had nothing but a counter and a, a book, a catalog. And whatever you had to order, look out of that book and order what it was and get paying for it, and you come back two weeks and pick it up, you know. <laughs> and a fire truck ran through that thing, and I'm glad that happened because I was glad that place was gone. <laughs> but, um, but, Wait, a fire truck really ran through it? Oh, yeah. Ran right inside, <laughs> stick it out the side. I used to have a picture of it. But, um, it was in Whitehaven, right down there on, off of Bellevue. And, uh, but, but the summer was, <clears throat> that's, that's when I really got to do my thing. I, I, I started doing the customs, custom work and everything on, on the Highland. 
but I got to really turn, get to turn loose on summer. We built a stage, had a stage on there, had the amps and everything set up just like so. When they get up on the stage, they could walk up on stage, pick the guitar up that they wanted, turn the amp on it, it'd be just like they were on stage anywhere. You know, just like so get the feel and do everything like that that they wanted to do, play. Wow. And uh, it was and, uh, people, and other people, there'll be people in Memphis say, oh, you gave me no idea, but they came in my store and took pictures of it before they, made, before they put their store together. That's how that and all that stuff. And the custom work was just, uh, it was so unique because nobody, you know, you look out there now, it's hard to understand that at, at, at some time there was nothing like that, you know, and people would get angry with you if you want to change anything. How dare you change, you know, well, what's the matter with it, you know? But uh, that's, that's, how that, that's how that got, that got going. And uh, we had a tremendous clientele. If I had, if I had any business acumen, which I don't, I'm a guitar player, you know, sort of thing like that. I would have realized what I could have done with it, you know, to carry it further. Mm. But I just didn't, didn't, I didn't have the acumen. I didn't have the, the uh, you know, the really business knowledge. I, I inherited, I got the music part of the family and everybody else got the business sense, you know. But if I'd put some stuff together and thought about it really, we could have really taken that thing to, to all kinds of highs. But the, the last store on, on, uh, at, uh, on Elvis Presley Boulevard was when Vernon came to me. He said, Elvis has got a birthday coming up. I want you to design a guitar for him, something special. I said, yes, sir. So I did, I did a Memphis rock and roll to me is black and white and gold. And so I did the Elvis instrument um, with, with that set up. And uh, I did seven coats of hand rub black lacquer. Seven? In the original. This is, this is a prototype of a remake that this one is right here. And uh, ordinarily it would have a karate symbol on the back of it. Now, when I did the one for, for Elvis, it had seven coats of hand rub black lacquer. And you could look in that thing and you could look like it's that deep, you know? And I was, I just got through doing it and I get a thing, a guy sent a thing over to me and it was a Taekwondo sticker. And he wanted to put on the guitar and I almost was in tears. I didn't want to do it. And so I said, I really don't want to do that. Do I have to do it? And then about another day or so, I was sitting there at the store and the phone rang. And I picked it up and said, you Mike Lad? I said, yes, sir. He said, hang on a second. The phone was passed and I heard a voice saying, put the damn sticker on, man. Click. And that was my conversation with the king. That was my conversation with the king. That's how I said. <laughs> he said, put the damn sticker on. Put the damn sticker on, boy, or man, or something, you know, <laughs> click, just bang, you know, on this. So that's how. I, so you put the damn sticker on. I sure did, but it did. but I, but I got him back. I made him pay for the guitar. He wasn't expecting that. So I, I think I charged him all of eighteen hundred dollars for it. Which these days you could even get the mother pearl nick done for that. You know. So keeping on track with uh, the topic of instruments, next we're going to hear from Herb Brockstein. Brockstein. Steen. Brockstein. I never know if it's. <laughs> you Steen second or guessed Stein. yourself. Yeah. I saw you that. You said yeah. it right the first I time. I was there. So. Herb opened up a drum shop in Houston, if I am correct, in 1955, and he sold Elvis his first drum kit. Is that right, Dan? That's right. And I believe the story goes that Elvis and DJ Fontana were on their way to their first gig together as a foursome and needed a drum kit. And Herb sold them uh, this drum set, and from there, I think all that I know is that it 
showed back up on the market? No one really knows what happened to it. Maybe you can fill in the gaps, Dan. Well, I think part of the story is going to be told here in the uh, clip from Herb's interview, which was fascinating to me. But um, essentially, um, Herb had no idea who this guy was with the pink shirt and the uh, uh, DA. So um, several months later, he was looking in Life magazine and saw his drum kit um, and this big article about Elvis. So um, what's, what's also cool is her became a really, really dear friend to all of us here in the music industry uh, after forming a very popular and well-known drumstick manufacturer in Texas called Promark. Uh, his son was also involved with the industry as well, and uh, it was a real pleasure to document his entire story. And from that, we're just lifting up this one out of many other stories, uh, the one about Elvis. And I think my favorite part is when I'm screening all these interviews and gathering our notes to find what clips we're going to play for you guys and everything like that, I get to see the full content. And uh, I distinctly remember it just cause this wave of a memory in me where you get to tour the factory, right? And right. I just remember hearing on the audio... Uh, Herb giving you all these drumsticks like here take these drumsticks here take these drumsticks <laughs> and I assumed at that point he was retired and I just would have loved to see the look on the line workers faces just like, why is this guy grabbing all our drumsticks giving and giving them away <laughs> but uh it kind of to me it set the tone of you can see what kind of guy he was they're just so passionate about what he does and caring and just excited to talk about it so absolutely he was a charm one of the things that I think was really kind of fun is um, after touring the factory on our way back to the house is when he actually told me the Elvis story. I hadn't known about that before. So I set up all the gear again. I'm like, oh, we are definitely getting this on tape. So I'm glad we have it. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. The Elvis story. Uh, this is probably about 19... 54 or 55, I'm not sure. A friend of mine, a drummer, worked at another music store. We were talking one day. He says, did you ever hear about this guy that's singing around Pasadena, which is right outside of Houston, Pasadena, Texas. Uh, this guy's a, a, a singer and a guitar player. His name is Elvis Presley. Well, I, I wouldn't have remembered the name, but I said, well, guitar, singer, hillbilly. I'm not too interested. I'm a, I'm a big jazz band drummer. So he said, yeah, he says, this guy's really knocking the people dead. Uh, he drives around in a pink Cadillac. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay. This is before he hit it big, you know. Not too long before he hit it big, but before he hit it big. And um, a couple of months went by, I guess, and I'm looking out the front of my little drum shop and I see a pink Cadillac drive up. And I thought to myself, I wonder if this is that guy that Red was telling me about that's a singer and a guitar player. The quote, hillbilly quote. <laughs> anyway, three guys come in. Uh, the three guys turned out to be Elvis, DJ Fontana, the drummer, hmm. and Bill Black, the bass player. Oh, yeah. I don't remember if the guitar player was with him then. 
but it doesn't matter. I know those three for sure. Anyway, they came in. Their Elvis has got khaki pants, khaki shirt, a lot of brill cream in his hair, nice tan, good-looking guy. And they, he wanted to see a set of drums for his drummer. And I had six or seven sets in stock, which was a lot in those days, not like today, by a long shot. And uh, they looked, uh, you know, white pearl, black pearl, green sparkle, gold sparkle. And they didn't seem to like any of them. He says, what are those drums over there in the corner? I said, oh, I said, that's my personal set. I said, I'm, I've got a, a thing at uh, KPRC TV today at 4 o'clock, and I'm all set ready to go. He said, can I see your drums? I said, well, yeah. This is Elvis or DJ? Elvis, Elvis. Can I see your drums? Okay. So I take the bass drum out of the case cover, and his eyes got big. My, the front bass drum head had an unborn calfskin, unshaven, brown and white, you know, with the fur, the hair still on it. Mm. And he didn't ask for anything else. He says, can I buy your set? I said, well, yeah. I said, I've sold my set 25 or 30 times. I said, I just get a new color or some new heart, you know. And I play different brands depending on, you know, what's the latest. Anyway, I remember he peeled off five big ones, $500 bills. And he took those uh, four drums. And uh, I figured, well, the drummer is going to be repaying him about $25 a week until those drums are paid for. Yeah, because I'd done it many, many times for others, you know. Right. So, um, I guess three or four months went by, maybe even five or six. I don't really remember how long, but I opened a Life magazine one day centerfold and there's my set of drums on the Ed Sullivan stage okay. and there's that guy that Elvis guy and the audience is going crazy that's your set? yeah that was my set it was blue? no no it, but they were copper colored they were Gretsch drums, uh, solid copper in color. The, uh, you know, instead of it having a pearl design, it was just solid. Uh, I mean, it, it was plastic, all right, but the covering was just that one color, copper. And uh, anyway, that was the set. And uh, I know J DJ was with him for about 14 years. He sure was, yeah. So, Did he ever have another set? Uh, actually, I'm not sure about that because the floor time was stolen or lost. Uh, and uh, so he only had three of the four drums that he had purchased. And uh, that's that interesting because we have a picture of Elvis from either the Steve Allen show or the Milton Berle show and it has him right in front of the drum and you can see that it's not shaved that you can yeah. see his spots yeah that's your drums yeah <laughs> that's cool 
That's way funny. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> anyway, I never, uh, you know, uh, my initial impression just when this buddy of mine was telling me about the guitar player, you know, I just imagined him as being a, uh, you know, a country western hillbilly guitar player singer. Nothing wrong with that. That was just what I right. envisioned. Yeah. I didn't know he was going to be the king of rock and roll. <laughs> so anyway, that's that's the story of Elvis. Other than DJ called me about oh gee, it's been close to two years ago now. Called me one day and he said, hey, uh, you know I'm I'm thinking to to auction my set. You know the original set. I'm having a drum made, the floor tom, to match it. Uh, you know, so I'll have the four drums, and um, so I've been offered ninety thousand for them. But he said, I think I might be able to get as much as one hundred and fifty on eBay. Anyway, he said, I need a letter of authenticity from you. I said, Oh, absolutely no problem. I said, I've got a replica set that I sold to Elvis for you, pictured in the catalog. And your name is mentioned in print, and I'll be happy to write the letter, you know, to back it up, because there's a rock and roll book out by Max Weinberg, the drummer with the E Street Band. Oh yeah. yeah. And in the interview, they're asking DJ. He's asking. He said, uh, "I noticed your snare drum." didn't sound like a country and western drum it sounded more like a jazz drum and he said yeah he says that's true he says because I bought that set from Herb Blockstein in oh, Houston oh no they got your name wrong in print oh and uh, anyway uh, I thought that was kind of cute frankly yeah <laughs> and uh I sent him the catalog that had the, I was pictured in the catalog with this replica set that I had made and sold to Elvis. And uh, uh, that was just what he was looking for and I sent a letter to authenticate, you know, that mm. that was the set that I sold and so forth. And I talked to him a few months after that to DJ and um, he hadn't sold them at that time. I, you know, he was holding out for 150, but he had turned down 90 grand. Hmm. Wow. That's something. Yeah, because I talked to him at an Asheville show about two years ago, and he was saying the same thing. He was about to auction it off, but he didn't give me a price that he was looking for. Mm -hmm. But. Uh, I mean, you gotta figure those drummers gotta be worth that. Yeah, to the right kind of collector. Right. Somebody's got the money. Would you pay ninety thousand to get it back? No. <laughs> I wouldn't pay nine thousand to get them back. I, I'm, you know, what am I gonna do with them? I'm not in that business. Right. To, uh, you know, to show them off and. Some of these restaurants that are from that time period, they might be interested in 
an original set. I mean, it was in the Jailhouse Rock. Oh, it was? Movie, yeah. Okay, so now we're obviously painting a picture of Elvis's musical abilities outside of just strumming the acoustic guitar. And what's neat is the these little vignettes of Elvis sitting down and playing the drums. We're going to hear a couple of other opportunities uh, throughout this podcast of people recalling Elvis playing the piano and some other instruments. So uh, while he may not have been... Uh, well-versed in all of them, he certainly had some more musical abilities than than most of us really knew. Um, and that's kind of fun to hear these sort of behind-the-scenes stories. Um, similar to that, um, the story that uh, Scotty Moore tells us um, was that uh, Elvis had a propensity of borrowing other people's <laughs> guitars, including <laughs> Scotty's, uh, for which Scotty wasn't always thrilled. And so uh, after hearing Scotty tell the story of Elvis borrowing his guitar for his famous 1968 uh, NBC comeback special, every time I see that, I look for Scotty's frown on his face as Elvis strums rapidly his uh, precious guitar. So um, these behind-the-scenes stories kind of add to the, the charm that th these were regular guys and, um, and enjoying what they do. So uh, let's hear from Scotty. Uh, Scotty was uh, Elvis's first guitarist. He was also Elvis's first manager. And a slight plug to our earlier episodes of this podcast, if you missed it. Um, Scotty was in an earlier episode where we talked all about Sun Records. It was our first two episodes, so if you haven't heard them, definitely go check them out. Was there any other instruments? There's some pictures taken of Elvis behind the drums, and, and of course we know he played the piano. Was there any other instruments? That, uh... Oh, he could get he could get a little noise out of just about anything that he you know he tried. Huh. Uh, piano, organ, or anything. He just he just uh, just loved all that stuff. Hmm. Oh, he couldn't play drums, but he get he could keep time with them some way or another. He just uh, <laughs> uh, if you remember the. Uh, the uh, TV special of 1968, what's now referred to as the comeback special, which we've never gone anywhere. I don't know why they say comeback, but uh, uh, where he takes my guitar and plays the rest of the thing electric. And he loved those bass run, you know, just the rhythm and putting those bass runs on that. And. Uh, I heard you weren't too happy about him using your guitar. Oh, he'd break string. He didn't own, thank God, he didn't let tell you, but uh, uh, he, uh, he'd scratch him up, and I was just sitting there going, oh. <laughs> <laughs> he may be the king, but he still scratches my guitar. Yeah, right. <laughs> Before we move on, though, I want to talk about how I just I was telling Dan during the break that I just I love Scotty Moore I never got to meet him but it's like he's like grandpa cute you know like you just your heart melts when you hear him talk and you get the warm fuzzies and yeah and even when he's upset about something it's still like yeah. a cute old man he's <laughs> talking about Elvis breaking his guitar strings and I could just be see him being like oh that little rascal like I mean <laughs> that's so true he was such a real guy I mean golly shucks kind of person you know and uh and I mean that in a very loving way and the one thing that I really sort of take um really got out of talking to him was the fact that uh in those early days when he was starting out with Elvis and and Bill Black and at Sun Records as Scotty told me they were 
not professionals. You know, they were very, very much amateurs. They didn't really know what they were doing. And I think that's part of the charm, even though we don't really come out and say it. But, you know, that rawness and that um, uneducated, really, way of communicating through music is really what made that whole genre of rockabilly stick uh, in our minds, in my opinion. So it's really neat to hear some of those early uh, ideas and thoughts and how that started developed. So moving forward, um, we just covered all about the instruments that Elvis played and acquired. And now we're going to start talking about the early years of Elvis and um, personal experiences of meeting Elvis for the first time. And we're going to start off with James Burton. The great James Burton on Telecaster. Uh, What a marvelous guy he is. Uh, Still performing all around the world. Um, James actually started off as a teenager playing behind uh, Ricky Nelson on Ricky's early career. Uh, Many of Ricky's biggest hits in the 1950s. Um, Hello Mary Lou and I'm a Traveling Man and things like that. And then started working with Elvis in the late 60s and uh, performed uh, live with Elvis as well as recording with him uh, until 1977. And then since that time, James has been very active um, all around the world playing with people like uh, John Denver and Neil Diamond and others. And uh, he's a marvelous guy, and I think you're going to come to like him too just by hearing his voice. So uh, let's hear a little bit from James Burton. Do you have any idea if Elvis sort of toned, I mean, I've heard the recordings of it, but just in your opinion, did Elvis sort of tone to be more country when he was at the Louisiana Hayride, do you think? Well, he's he's always had country roots and uh, uh, gospel country and uh, and a lot of blues. And I think uh, the mixture of all those together uh, turned him into a, a pretty good rock uh, artist, you know. And of course, he could do any pretty much any style as a singer, you know, as a great singer. And uh, he had some really, uh, um, I just think his uh, basic style was probably more more country, you know, gospel. Yeah, he was uh, quite a showman, and he was a, uh, he played rhythm guitar. You know, he started out with a small group. You know, Scotty Moore on guitar, and uh, he had uh, uh, Bill Black on bass and stand-up bass, and uh, it was like a trio at first. You know, Elvis and the two guys. You know, and then uh, later on, uh, the drummer DJ Fontana, who is from uh, Shreveport. And he was playing drums on the Hayride one night, so uh, Elvis asked him if he would play on a couple of songs with him on the show, and he did, and they hired him. So we heard, we just got done hearing from James Burton, who mentioned the Louisiana Hayride, and if you're not familiar, that is a television program, radio program. That is a radio program. Before Louisiana our time. Hayride, Louis, <laughs> oh, wait, there was a time before television? What's radio? What's, I don't understand. You guys are embarrassing yourselves. <laughs> Netflix? I don't know. <laughs> the Louisiana Hayride was very similar to um, the country version in Nashville called the Grand Old Opry. And this was a live broadcast that brought you the music and comedy uh 
along with other entertainment of the day uh, in Louisiana. And this was uh, so famous that it actually did transcribe into or translate into television in the later years, in the 1950s, late 1950s. And as I recall, Imogene Coca and some other comic uh, geniuses were a part of that program in the early days. This was a big boost for Elvis's career when he was just cutting records on Sun with Billy Black on bass and Scotty Moore on guitar. The uh, three of them would travel around to uh, fairs and concerts uh, in the South, but not getting a whole lot of exposure other than their record on radio play until this live concert at the Louisiana Hayride, which led to a couple of different uh, segments uh, they were invited back a couple of different dates, and this was a big boost. In fact, it was really a delight to me as a young Elvis fan in the early 80s when they finally released some of those live concerts because I had heard about songs that they had been recording but never heard them, like they did a great version of Chuck Berry's Maybelline uh, only on that concert and never in a recording studio or elsewhere. So it was kind of fun to have an insight as to Elvis and the guy uh, performing popular songs of the day for this radio show. And, of course, the big thing that came from that was the, uh, uh, the fact that there was a young drummer who was on staff for the Louisiana Hayride playing behind everybody else uh, that Elvis took a liking to and brought him on the road with him, and that's DJ Fontana. Do you know, Dan, if any of that content from the Louisiana Hayride is online? Like, if you search for it, could you find a video or audio of it? I haven't actually looked, but I'm guessing there's got to be at least audio tracks. Yeah. I'm sure it's somewhere. Yeah. Internet, you know, endless. It has everything. Uh, yeah, everything. <laughs> so let's hear from DJ, who Dan mentioned was a drummer with the Louisiana Hayride at first, but then he joins Elvis later on and goes on tour with Elvis. So he's a pretty cool guy. So the story goes that Elvis has an appearance That's where they first come in. It was Elvis, Scotty, and Bill. And uh, they didn't have a drummer. And I happened to be there just by chance that Saturday night. And, and Scotty and I said, well, why don't you come up and uh, help us out a little bit? I said, okay. I said, let's go back in the dressing room and talk about it. Let me see what you guys are going to do, you know. So we went in. Scotty brought his guitar, Elvis brought his little rhythm, and Bill. So we didn't have a lot of pieces, so it wasn't, wasn't hard to get around. And I, and I said, well, what do you want me to do? They said, well, I'll just kind of play a little rhythm. Oh, okay. So that's what I did. And, and I got to listen to the guys. And the sound that they were getting was so good, I said, well, why should I assemble it up and bang it up? And I said, I shouldn't do that. Stay out of their way. Let them, they were the stars. Let them do what they're going to do and, and not clutter up the rhythm. You know, just play it straight ahead and, and no tricks, no tom-toms, no cymbals. And I, I guess they liked it, you know. And so they come down a couple weeks and I played. And Elvis come over and he said, you know, said, we're going to go out to Texas for three or four days. I say out to Texas, within 100 miles of Shreveport. East Texas, and he said, you want to go? I said, yeah. So we went out and we played those four days, went back to the Hayride in Shreveport, and he said, well, we're going to go home now. He said, we don't have nothing, zero, and we may never get another job. He said, well, we're going to go home and see what we can come up with, you know, with agents and bookers. 
He said, now, if, uh, if we go out again, would you go with us? I said, well, I'm not doing anything else except the hayride, you know, one night a week. So that's how basically, just by accident, I was there. So in about 10 days, they come back. They said, hey, man, we've got about 15 or 20 shows. His records are getting played. He's getting hotter and hotter right there in Texas, Louisiana. All territorial stuff. It wasn't very big, but just enough to get us work, you know. Out of curiosity, have you heard of Elvis before he was on the Never heard of him in my life. Nope. He, he come in, and uh, I had heard the record on the station because they, they, they were going to bring him in. And then one of the managers, the bookers, they called me in one day and said, listen to this record. So it was an old Sun record. They said, what do you think? I said, God, how many you got? Eight or 10 pieces on that record? They said, no, three. And I said, that's going good record. They said, well, we're going to bring the kid in, you know. And uh, I said, that's great. Bring him in, we'll see what we can do. You know, that's all you could do, just listen to him. Bill was a comedian. He was the funny man. There was a lot of early shows that we were doing. The Elvis was actually bombing out there. And people didn't quite understand what he was doing. Moving around, falling down, all that stuff. They weren't used to that. They were used to country acts, playing the guitar, not moving a step, you know. And they saw this kid moving around out there. They said, this guy's crazy, you know. So he was, he'd actually, kind of bomb out at first. And Bill would jump up and down, fall on the floor, slap his face, tell funny jokes. And they say, hey, these guys are not bad. They're good people. They're funny. So we like them. So Bill kind of broke the ice for us, a lot of, a lot of shows. Scotty was, uh, we used to call him the old man. He was quiet, didn't say nothing. Uh, he didn't say nothing for 24 years. <laughs> So uh, I was pretty well in the middle of all of them. You know, I just, uh, I'd stay out of their way, let them fight. You know, they started the show, and they were the beginning of that, that era. And I was just an outsider, actually, you know, they hired me to do that. So I wasn't about to get in the middle of that stuff. Besides that, Elvis was tough anyhow. So I didn't want to fight with him. And, and uh, so I just stayed out of their way. Well, you know, he come in, you know, with his clothes first, you know, the peg pants and pink shirts. And I said, well, and the hair, you know, the sideburn. I said, the boy's got something, you know. Uh, you know, it's something you couldn't put your finger on. You, know, you don't know what the heck he's doing because it was new. You know, the cowboys had their cowboy suits and, you know, you're used to seeing that. But when this kid come in there with his shoes, two-tone shoes, all kind of color. And, uh, and, and if you and I would have wore those combinations, we'd look like freaks, you know, out there. But everything he put on, he looked good in it, really good. I don't know how, but he did. Of course, he was a handsome little guy anyhow, you know. Oh, yeah. He never changed. Uh, people say he changed, but he never changed. Uh, I guess the reason for that was we actually started with him, so he, so he couldn't con us, you know. We was beyond that. 
we knew his little, you know, little, his little things. And uh, sometimes he'd get in a bad mood, and we knew that. So as soon as he'd get in the mood, just leave him alone. Leave him alone for a couple of days. Don't even speak to him. Then you come around and say, hey, what's, what's wrong, God? You guys mad at me? You know, no. And it was over. You know, he, he was over his madness, whatever. It wasn't mad at us, maybe. Somebody at home might have made him mad. The colonel might have made him mad. Who knows, you know? All right, so that was DJ Fontana. And next we're going to hear back from James Burton, who you just heard a moment ago. And he's going to be talking about his first experience meeting Elvis. Do you remember the very first time you met him? I sure do. Um, actually, I didn't meet him until 1969. He called me for the 68 comeback special, but unfortunately I, was, I couldn't do it. I was doing an album with Frank Sinatra at that time, and Jimmy Boyden was a producer, and we were booked all week, so I couldn't uh, get out of it. So anyway, uh, I recommended a couple friends of mine to go play. And Anyway, um, uh, he, Elvis called me in 1969, and uh, to put a band together, asked me if I'd be interested in uh, playing Las Vegas with him, putting a band together, and and uh, which I did, you know. But I was real busy in the studio work, and I was trying to figure out, boy, I don't know how this is going to work out because I had a, a lot of clients, you know, I was very busy in the studio recording. So anyway, I had to work it out somehow to, which I did to go do it, you know. And it was wonderful. Uh, to go out and play live with him and you know put the musicians together but it seemed like when I walked in the studio and he was there and I went over and uh, he said you're James because he wa he watched me on the Oz and Harriet show to see watch me play guitar and, and uh, Ricky him and Ricky were friends back then they used to play football together but I never met Elvis personally until that particular night when I went down for the first rehearsal to all for the band he wanted to hear the band you know so we got together and played and it was just incredible uh, it was like we'd known each other our, our whole lives you know and and our, our musical background is pretty much the same it was amazing so next up we have a clip from the interview with Chip Young and Fred Foster. Um, Fred was actually just inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame, which we actually just visited in the Summer Nam show, or at the Summer Nam show, I should say. And it's really neat. Fred is a a genius, really, when it comes to finding talent in Nashville. And I love the story that he heard Elvis early on and knew something was there, uh, but couldn't convince his bosses at Mercury Records at the time to sign Elvis. It's a it's a great story. And sitting next to him, um, as uh, Mike just mentioned, is uh, Chip Young, who we'll also hear from in this clip. Uh, Chip was a studio guitarist. Uh, he was born in 1938, and unfortunately, we lost him in 2014. Um, a really great guy, uh, very charming, who really was uh, fe felt overwhelmed and blessed to have had a career uh, in the music industry playing with uh, such giants as Elvis and, and many, many others in Nashville. Uh, he had a real sense of pride uh, being a part of that scene. I was in Richmond, Virginia, and I had just left WRVA, which 50,000 watt, you know, sophisticated pop was all they played. Mm. 
you know, Castellanitz and Monobani and yeah. Ray Anthony and, you know. And I'm headed out to this pop station on the edge of town. And I had the radio on because I always listened to the stations that I was going to. And I would listen as I left them, too, to see what they were doing. Smart. All of a sudden, he said, well, here it is, the hottest record in town. And I've heard this sound, and I thought, what is that? I pulled over to the side of the road and stopped and turned it up. Hmm. You're right, I'm left, she's gone. Elvis Presley. <laughs> I said, holy smoke. This is it. So I get out to the station. I said, what is that record you're playing? He said, it's Elvis Presley. I, I said, how hot is it? He said, huh. I can't even describe it. He said, watch it. I'm playing it again. I was looking at the phone. He had about 10 or 12 lines coming in, you know. He put it on and every line lit up instantly. <laughs> I went, wow. So I called Art Talmadge, marketing director at Mercury. And I, I had talked to this DJ who was pretty knowledgeable. And he said, I understand his contract's for sale. So I called Art and I said, you have got to buy this artist. He's going to be the biggest thing that's ever happened. And he said, oh, come on. What kind of a name is that anyway? I said, it's, who cares? <laughs> I'm telling you what I'm telling you. And you better listen, because this guy is unreal. He said, okay, send me a record. Well, where am I going to get one? There was none available at any record shop. I got called while I was at the station. And finally, I talked to a guy into taping me a copy, and I sent a copy to him and overnight. And he called me the next day, and he said, I think this is the weirdest stuff I've ever heard in my life. I said, Art, look, you hired me to find you hit records and find you hits we could cover and find we could, ones we could buy. This guy is the whole deal. And so he called Sam Phillips. And he got into the bidding, and he called me one day, three or four days later, and he said, well, that guy is just on, on totally unreasonable. Said, he wants $50,000 for him, and I, I, I'm no, I've offered him 35, and that's it. I said, Art, you can give him 500000 It won't matter. You'll make it back on the first record. He said, you're insane. I said, possibly. Never happened had to debate that, but you could be right. But I know what I'm telling you. Buy him, whatever. He said, no, I'm a 35. The RCA got him. Then Mercury had a meeting of all the field force, by which they'd expanded by now and we had a bunch of us. Mm -hmm. We go to Chicago for the meeting, and I walk into the meeting. <laughs> Heartbreak Hotel is sitting at number one. Oh, golly. And he points at me and he said, if you mention the name, you're fired. Okay. <laughs> I won't mention the name. Wow. And Incredible. He finally told me, he said, I should have listened to you. I said, yeah, but you didn't. 
Well, that would have changed everything. Oh, what would that have done for Mercury? Unbelievable. Oh, yeah. That's almost as much as they paid for the whole contract, wasn't it? Mm. Paid 40 for the contract. Can you imagine? <laughs> Unbelievable. It would have made, I was right. He would have made it back on the first round. Yeah. That's oh, right. gosh, yeah. The first. <laughs> Not even talking about the second. Yeah. Or the third. That's unbelievable. All right, so that was Chip Young and Fred Foster. And now we're going to round out this segment about early Elvis and uh, different guys meeting Elvis for the first time with my personal favorite, Scotty Moore, of course. And so we're gonna actually hear two back-to-back clips of coming from Scotty. The first one being the story uh, of Scotty first meeting Elvis. And if you've been listening to our podcast, as Mike mentioned earlier, our first two episodes were about Sun Records and Sam Phillips. And so this segment may feel a bit familiar to you because it was utilized in there in, in that podcast as well to tell the story of Sun. So we're gonna hear that as well as uh, one of my favorite stories in, from Scotty, and that's him talking about managing Elvis. He was actually Elvis's first manager, which not a p- lot of people realize. And you can kind of get that warm feeling again from Scotty when he tells that story of he really took him on as a client to help him out. And when the time came for growth and for Elvis to move along and go on to make way more money than Scotty was capable of ha- handling, he let him out of the contract and let him move on to bigger and, and better managers, which I think is very humbling as well. Right, Bob Neal was the next guy, and then as everybody knows, Colonel Tom Parker was the third and final manager for Elvis, uh, which of course was uh, uh, instrumental in getting Elvis from Sun Records to RCA, which is uh, another part of this whole transition to Elvis's growth and development in his career. Do you remember the first time you uh, met Elvis? Yeah. Um... This is July. It was the July fourth, uh, forty-eight years ago. Hmm. Uh, this this past Ju- uh, the last fourth of July, around two o'clock in the afternoon, he came over to my house. Did you know he was coming? Forty-eight years, my lord! <laughs> <laughs> you're, wait, you're too young for that. <laughs> uh, Did, is this a story that Sam set you up that you were going to get together, or? Uh, well, there's been so many variations of it. It's, it's uh, <laughs> uh, the the group I was talking about earlier, the uh, Starlight Wranglers. Uh, see that uh, after when I put that group together, and then uh, uh, then I got a little radio show for us. Uh, then I started. Then I heard about uh, this studio. This guy that had a studio. And you could go in and make your own record, oh. or, or he was uh, doing some records for some other people, for other labels. And uh, so I went to see, and it, it, this was Sam, it was Memphis Recording Service. Oh. And the Sun Records was a, just a side thing. He was trying to, uh, he was trying to land some kind of, you know, get a hit in which way. And he had sense enough to know what he. Uh, was doing, he was cutting R&B stuff for uh, uh, mainly chess records in Chicago, I think. And uh, so anyway, I, I went to see him, and he said, "Yeah, bring the band in," because he was he was dabbling around in uh, country music also. And uh, I uh, we went in and uh, played several things for him, and he liked. It. He said he got a good group, good tight. Uh, he said, but 
do you have any, any original material? Nope. He said, well, I really don't see any, you know, percentage in recording other people's material. And I uh, said, so if you get some, uh, get some original material, come back and see me. Well, I went out and wrote two songs and then gave uh, Poindexter, the singer, part of it. And, uh, and my oldest brother, part of it, because he could read music and he wrote this lead sheet so we could copyright the darn things. <laughs> I, mean, I was really business wise back then. <laughs> That's great. Anxiousness can get you in trouble <laughs> if you're not careful. But anyway, I got two songs and went back and uh, told Samus I got a couple of songs and he said, okay, come in, we'll listen again. Uh, he liked both songs and uh, he cut, cut the record. What was the song? Uh, one song was uh, My Kind of Carrying On. And, uh, 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 gosh, my mind went blank. What is the other side? Uh, can't remember right offhand. Well, you were pretty happy with it? Well, I, was, didn't, uh, I, I didn't have sense enough to know what was a hit record if I heard it, you know. <laughs> uh, what I was looking for is that Okay, I got this little radio show. Now, if I got a record, I could get it played on the radio some and get more, hopefully more weekend gigs because all the band was had daytime jobs, you know. You were, um, a little known fact is, I believe this, the correct story is you were actually Elvis's first manager even before Bob Neal, right? That's correct, yeah. Was that a big paying gig for you? Oh, boy, I missed it. Look at me now. <laughs> now that actually came about uh, uh, the first record when it started getting so much airplay around Memphis. Uh, there were three or four uh, quote unquote promoters, uh, bookers, managers, whatever you want to be, started calling him. And won't know if he could, they could book him or they could manage or this and that and the other. And he didn't know what to, uh, didn't know what to say to him or anything. And he didn't. And being straight as he was, he he didn't think about lying to him. Say, yo, no, I've already got somebody. So this was actually Sam's idea. We were talking about it in the studio one day, and and I was was complaining. He said, well, people keep calling me, and and he said, hey, I tell you what, to do. Said, uh, said, won't you go? You sign a contract with Scotty for a year, and uh, so that'll give us give us a chance to look around uh, and find somebody we all like, you know, to manage or book or whatever. We were thinking about booking more than really they managed when it kind of went together. But uh, and so I went to the lawyer and got just a single. I said, I want just a single, just a single one sheet uh, contract. And uh, and his mom and daddy had to sign it, of course, because he was underage. And uh, that was what that was about. And then Bob, I don't remember exactly, but he took we uh, took over before I think before the year was actually completely up. Anyway, I think and, part of the reason why I brought it up is to me it's always represented how Elvis trusted you. You know, he did, did you get that same sense that that was well, an example he, of his. He was kind of, you know, he was kind of like, he was always kind of like a younger brother to me anyway. Uh, 
I guess he, I, I guess he kind of felt that way toward me as far as being an older sibling. I don't know. He never, never said. But uh, uh, we'd argue like anybody else, you know. We all of Bill, DJ, we all we, man, you put four guys in a or three guys beginning and four in a car three four hundred miles a day and uh, uh, one day we get arguing about something everyone who's driving would pull over the side of the road everybody pile out of the car and square off and then one maybe one would stay in the car of the driver maybe or something and he'd sit there for me and he'd say all right you SOBs we got to be there and so and so and so better get back in the car I said, oh yeah you're right <laughs> get back in the car and go <laughs> Steve. Ah, just just typical, you know. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> uh. it's always good to hear from Scotty. I feel like he should be in every podcast. Maybe we can put him in more going <laughs> I forward. Like that idea. Find yeah. ways to just wedge. he can be our fourth co-host. Yeah, just, I mean, idea. <laughs> we'll just edit his interview so he can say whatever we want him to say. Yeah. So we can put him in every podcast. <laughs> so moving forward, um, we're going to talk about some recordings, and I feel like that is kind of what everybody wants to hear about um what came out of all of this what came out of this big elvis thing that everybody talks about and first off we're going to talk or we're going to hear from uh boots randolph what's really neat i think about this segment and uh, hats off to elizabeth for putting this together is and michael alluded to it, it this of course is the the heart of elvis's career but our angle it, with these interviews from the nam oral history program is talking about the instruments and the people behind that um, that scene, both in the studio and live performances that helped Elvis achieve that sound that he was looking for. And they did it in a number of ways and with a number of different instruments. And so it's kind of neat. We've been talking about a bass and drums and guitar, and now we get to hear from uh, a saxophone hero of mine, Boots Randolph. And he's going to be talking about the hit Reconsider Baby, which Dan Pop Quiz was released in what year? Oh, my gosh. Oh, oh man, I feel like... 1961 was the first time that they recorded it, but it actually wasn't released until later, so it might be a trick question. Ooh. Ooh, Man, I thought we had him. You are so close. And interestingly (laughs) enough, there's a great story behind that. (laughs) Oh, boy. Okay, let me... I got to lean back. Hold on. What have you done? (laughs) So Elvis did a lot of charity work, most of which went unnoticed for a long time. Um, uh, The uh, state of... Hawaii that had just become a state, I believe in the late 1950s. Uh, that's a good trivia question for you. Was it 1959? That's what I want to say. Anyway, I don't it know. became a state and <laughs> they, the state was raising money to create a memorial for the SS Arizona uh, that was attacked and sunk during uh, uh, the early days of World War II. And so Elvis went and performed to help raise money. And uh, Boots Randolph was there along with Scotty and and, uh, the rest of the gang. And uh, it was a very moving experience, according to Boots. Uh, He didn't tell us on camera, but later um, recalled the story of just shaking there, you know, knowing what had happened in that very site and to think that they were going to make a lasting impression uh, to have this memorial that people could uh, go to uh, for the future. And, of course, that memorial is still very much a part of uh, uh, the landscape there at Pearl Harbor. 
So um, really interesting stuff happening. But this song was a, a blues song, which Elvis, of course, was very influenced by the blues, but didn't record a whole lot of blues records. A few, of course, but this is pretty much a quintessential blues recording, uh, Reconsider Baby. Um, and so we get to hear from the sax man himself, Boots Randolph. Well, uh, you, you sort of um, ran right over Reconsider Baby, and, and uh, I'd like to go back to it for a minute because that's, uh, I, I, I really think, in my opinion, one of the greatest Elvis recordings, and it has a lot to do with the fact that he, he really um, focused on the blues, and, and that had a lot to do with your solo, I think. You know, Elvis was really a blues band. He came out of that Delta stuff down there, and he, he was a real uh, fan of, of all the blues and the gospel stuff. Was was pretty all put together, you know. And he says, and this is late now, it must be 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning when we're recording. And he says, uh, go get your sax, and I want to I do a blues thing and let you play a little bit on it. And, and we're all sitting, you know, we're pretty well rocked out by this time. But I, I went and got the horn, and he starts playing it, and, I, I think it might have been the first or second take that he did, and I, I had waited so long to play that I was, I was keyed up, man. I mean, I'm, I'm wired by now, you know. And I got that horn, and I, 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 I don't know what kind of solo it was, but I listened to it not too, too long ago. I listened to it. It's a pretty good solo. It's great. But uh, he liked it. He really liked it. And, and, and I, I was really proud because it's the only time it ever, ever anybody ever played a sax solo. Is there more than one version of that? It seems to me there's a longer version. <laughs> he did it at, uh, at, at, at Pearl Harbor. We, did a, we went did a live concert over there, and I heard a, a version of it came from that same show. Oh. And I also played a solo on that particular thing. But that's the only one I know of. It could be another one. Did you uh, perform live with him at any other time besides that uh, SS Arizona fundraising? We, we did a couple of shows. We did one in Memphis. I think we did one in Shreveport. I don't remember if we did one here in Nashville. We did about four or five, and that was it. Uh, he didn't do a lot of concerts back in those days. Those were right after he got out of the service. And then he did the uh, Blue Hawaii, and so we did the soundtrack here uh, or no, in Hollywood. And then we went on over to, to uh, Hawaii and did the uh, concert for raising money for the Arizona, yeah. I'd love to get your thoughts about what it was like being in the studio, particularly in those uh, the soundtrack years, because even though we sort of hear a lot of bad things about how horrible the plots were in those movies, uh, there were some great musicians on those uh, recordings. And tell me a little bit about how that worked out. You know, movie music is different than a lot of other different. They're writing music for a scene. And a lot of times the scenes are built around a tune or vice versa. Uh, the musicians they had were all fabulous players. I mean, I remember out in Hollywood when we did some soundtracks, we had Barney Castle playing guitar, Hal Blaine on drums, and all of our guys from Nashville and people like that. And it was really uh, uh, the best of. And uh, I think probably, uh, you know, some of them were less than great songs, let me put it like that. <laughs> uh, 
I remember the, the publishers would be around and they were sort of helping to feed this stuff into Elvis and for the soundtracks. I remember we did one, I can, Hal Wallace directed, I can't remember what the movie was. And, but there, uh, uh, there, there was a lot of choreography in it. And the guy said, well, I want you to play sax, but this scene is going to be, he's going to be in a boat out in the middle of a lake, and I can't figure that the saxophone player's going to be standing out there playing sax or something to that effect. <laughs> I said, well, he said, just, uh, just play kind of background. He said, don't get too wild and woolly. And that sort of thing went along. We tried to fit into whatever the, uh, the, it called for, the scene or the occasion. And uh, Elvis was fun to work with because he always was, he was up, and he had a lot of, uh, energy. He was he was shy. He was naive quite a bit, and uh, we discussed different things like uh, uh, having fun, you know. And, and that's what that whole industry about was about during those days was let's have a good time here, and it'll show, and it'll be part of life, you know. And it did. So I think uh, cutting soundtracks is a little different than than just regular out recording. I think a little bit maybe. Still the same process, but of course back in those days they hadn't, they would just did everything analog. There was no digital, you know. So that was Boots Randolph, who, as Dan mentioned prior to the clip, uh, played the sax with Elvis. Um, possibly Dan's favorite sax player, maybe only rivaled by... Jim Horn. Jim Horn. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other story. If you ever, cross, tell you. If you ever cross paths with Dan from Nam, <laughs> please ask him to tell you the Jim Horn story. And then if Mike and I are with him, watch our faces when you ask him. Just watch to our tell eyes. You. Yeah, they'll, they, they'll be rolling. They'll disappear. I'll see the back of my head. And Only then because come you've back. heard it a million times, not because it's a charming no. and wonderful story. Jim Horn is fantastic. <laughs> and it was such a pleasure to meet him. Let's just put that out there. But if I have to hear Dan tell that story one more time, I might just scream. So, <laughs> For the record, you brought it up today. <laughs> because so. how could I not? I mean, look at that segue. Um, so next, moving on, getting us back on track, we're going to hear from one of our, I don't know, our little favorites here in the Resource Center. Yeah, I feel like he's famous here. And at the time of the recording, he recently had a birthday. So, yes. you know, a little shout out to him. Norbert Putman, the great bass player who had been uh, on tons of records in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, um, as a, a part of that great rhythm section, got to Elvis in the uh, early 1970s and recorded, uh, I think, over 10 full albums with Elvis, including those that were recorded at the uh, in the Jungle Room in Graceland. Um, Norbert is uh, a wonderful guy and a great storyteller. Um, and maybe this is a good opportunity to uh, plug uh, the fact that he has a book out that you might find very entertaining, as I did. Um, he's also opened up his home uh, and his uh, contacts for the oral history program, and we've in, been able to interview several people, dozens actually, of musicians and studio guys, engineers, songwriters uh, that Norbert knows and, and is friends with because he cares so much about our collection and sees the importance of documenting these stories. So um, we're very, very pleased to, to be friends with him. And of course, he's got a million stories to tell. So let's hear one of them. We were booked 6 to 9, 10 to 1 a.m., Monday through Friday with Elvis Presley. And I found out the first night that uh, even though we were there at 6 o'clock, 
the king always walks through the door at eight. And then it's an embracing time of storytelling and camaraderie uh, until 10 o'clock. And uh, I've often thought about this later. Presley felt he needed to spend a couple hours to relax everybody. He was the most common guy in the world, okay? But when he came through the door, he had a cape on, you know, and he was carrying a walking cane with a silver lion's head with ruby eyes. And he pitches that, and he's King Leopold of, uh, King Ludwig of Bavaria, right? <clears throat> and then he says, <clears throat> come give me a hug, everybody. And they're all, and it's together. I have to tell you what's, what has happened to Elvis Presley. He would actually talk about himself in the third person. <laughs> So he clowned around for about 10 o'clock, till 10, and Felton would come out. Oh, Felton come out, Elvis, oh, look now, it's, uh, it's 10 o'clock, you know, the guys have already got one session with an hour overtime, and uh, yeah, we've made an hour, haven't had a note, I love this, see? And uh, <clears throat> we really need to get something done, you know, we've got, uh, we're gonna try to get, uh, oh, the first night, of, uh, first week I work with him, we do two or three different kinds of records. I think we might have begun a Christmas record and a gospel record, and, a classic country record, the picture of him as a little kid. We do all of that in, in five nights. Okay. So about 10 o'clock, <clears throat> I always say, okay, Felton, what do you want to start with first? And he'd say, well, why don't we do Silver Bells? Oh, we're going to do a Christmas song. Uh, you guys know Silver Bells? Well, I might play, you got a demo of it just to refresh. So they play Silver Bells, it's Christmas time. And I was just singing along, and we were writing out all the numbers and Okay, <clears throat> uh, let's run it down once. So we run it down, one, engineers got one shot, okay? We run it down, and Elvis, hand me my mic, and it was a, for all of you equipment guys, it was a Lecture Voice RA15 wrapped in foam, which is probably the same mic he used in Vegas. You can't pop it, has great rejection, very narrow pattern. And so, and he's standing in front of the bass and drums, you know, and he's got a long chord. Well, we knock out uh, the first night. Uh, well, he gets it in two or three takes. We play it flawlessly, right? Why would we make a mistake? We've got a road map. All I have to do is glance at my little number chart. I know exactly where it's going. And this, this was the great thing about being a Nashville studio guy. This was our secret weapon. They couldn't do this in New York and L.A. They needed an arranger to write out all, all the bars and letter, you know, it's a C minor seven. We just, we put one slash, one minus for C minor, okay? One plus is one augmented, okay? And uh, what, what was the triangle? We had, we had, we had all these two. So, so anyway, that first night we do seven sides and it's 3 a.m. We start at 10. In the week we did 35 sides. And the king was... Loving it, see? He wanted a band, he wanted to be like a jam. Let's start singing, you start playing, you guys record it, we'll, we'll see how much energy we can put into it. And he was over the top with energy. Uh, I'd never ever recorded with anyone who was as willing to go over the top. It was like an athletic event. It was like, you guys ready, we're gonna get this. Right, one take, one take, we're gonna kill this thing. You ready to go? You ready, Fulton? Turn on the light. I mean, he was like that. You know, he was, he was like a, a he was like a, a fullback is about to take it in from the third <laughs> three yard line over the top. You know. So let's jump back to a familiar name that we just heard from um, in the previous segment, James Burton. And last we heard from him, he was just talking about uh, the Louisiana Hayride and meeting Elvis for the first time. 
Now we're going to hear him talk about his favorite recordings with Elvis. Now I know um, a couple of your favorite are the Ricky Nelson recordings, but do you have a couple of favorite things that you did with Elvis? Yeah, uh, like uh, we did a lot of great live stuff. I played on a lot of uh, also recordings, and uh, we did Moody Blue, all those in the studio, uh, Burning Love, all those. Uh, and we did a lot of live things like uh, Suspicious Minds. You know, he did an album in 68 um, when he did the comeback special. And that's when he recorded uh, In the Ghetto and uh, Suspicious Minds in the studio mm -hmm. in Memphis. And uh, But for some reason, we started playing it uh, live, and uh, which was a, a faster than the record, the recording, and uh, he liked it better uh, for the live recording, and that seemed to be the one that uh, they played most. And uh, I liked all the songs we did. I mean, everything was great. Uh, the ballads, uh, all the country stuff, all the the rock and roll stuff, all the a lot of his old stuff, Mystery Train, and you know that's all right, Little Mama. And, and he did all that stuff, I mean, it was great. We just had the feel for it, you know, it was good. He loved it. Well, speaking of favorite recordings, we also have a great segment of um, DJ Fontana talking about um, one of the uh, early songs that really put Elvis on the map, his first recording with RCA in 1956, which was Heartbreak Hotel. Yeah, and in this clip, we're also gonna, DJ talks about that, but he also kind of jumps around and talks about um, one of the other kind of iconic things that gets associated with Elvis, and that's his passion for cars, specifically Cadillacs. And so you hear DJ m mention in there the story of going on tour in their cars, um, driving themselves around as opposed to what tours look like today, and uh, Elvis' love for Cadillacs, which is kind of a unique perspective because you don't really hear that from these guys. The first one we did here in town was the Heartbreak Hotel. And that was a million seller. Just, I don't know how it went that fast, but it did. Uh, he was new on the label, which is hard to sell a million records, you know, if you're new. And after that, it was million after million after million, you know. And then uh, Don't Be Cruel and Hound Dog was eight million, you know. So. Yeah, so you, you, you never know who's going to hit and who's not, you know, you just, you, you hope you luck out and get with a guy that's going to be good, you know. Well, there was a lot of struggle at the very beginning, as you mentioned, you know, some of those early concerts, you kind of bombed a little bit, and you, you uh, traveled with him in an old car, right? Yeah, well, it started out, Scotty had a 53 Chevrolet, and it wasn't his car at all. He didn't have any money. Elvis didn't have any money. Bill didn't have a job. Nobody was working. Scotty's wife was working. She was working at Sears down there. So she had a car. They'd let her have credit. See, the rest of them, no. So they used her car for a long time until it just fell all apart. And then he, he was making a little money. So he bought a 53 or 54 Cadillac Stretch. And that's how it really started. He loved Cadillacs anyhow, you know, so. And we, we, he had a, at one time he had five or six sitting in front of his house after, after he brought Graceland, but none of them would run. He'd just leave them there and they'd dry rot, tires and everything. Now the car we took, 
as soon as we get to Memphis, it's got to take it right to the shop, get it fixed. Whatever's wrong, fix it. Go to California, put it in the shop, get it fixed. But he had not a car in his lot that would run, except that one. He didn't, you know, he didn't worry about cars. We knew we had to get a car to run from, from his house to the West Coast, or we'd walk. So we took care of that car. We didn't do it at RCA there, you know, that uh, on the corner up there, RCAB. We cut that at, at around the corner there. They had a little, it was an old church. And it was there, and they had a little room made, you know, for a studio, RCA did. And there was no echo at all in that, and no echo places or nothing like that. So what they did to get that, it was trying to get that same sound of sun which they never find, they never did get it. Sam was too smart for them, you know. And uh, what they did, the engineers said, well, we gotta get this echo going. So they run some mics down a hallway and picked up the, and we couldn't walk down the hallway because of the footsteps, you know. And uh, that's how they got the echo on that first uh, Heartbreak Hotel. Well, that's when it really got busy. Yeah, we went to New York, we did a couple of shows. We did six uh, Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey shows right off. And that kind of got the ball rolling. And then we did Sullivan, all those other guys, you know. And, and like I said, you know, he was a handsome dude anyhow. And uh, he, he got the girls on his side, so that's all we needed, you know. <laughs> Oh, not much. Well, we're not going to go into that, are we? What was your, uh, did you actually at one point move to Memphis? Never did. Oh. I, I never moved to Memphis. Uh, to tell you the truth, I never did like Memphis. I just, I couldn't really find my way around in that town. I don't know why. Uh, I, was, I, was, uh, I, did, I moved from there to here, Nashville, but I liked Nashville. And, but uh, I, I never did, couldn't get used to Memphis at all. Maybe a nice town, I don't know. And, but I still go down there all the time and I still get lost. And that's only been 40 years, you know. Next up, we're going to hear back from the dynamic duo that we heard from in the previous segment, Chip Young and Fred Foster. We're going to hear three back-to-back clips. Um, the first one being about uh, what it was like working as a session player and working with Elvis. Um, their sessions with Elvis, as well as music publishing, and the song Burning Love. Now, I'm wondering, since you were a session player for such a long time, did, did, was it ever aggravating to do different takes? If it, it took five or six takes to get the song, did that bother you at all? Mm, no, not really. Hmm. No, just... Just do your job. Just, yeah, just keep on going on. Hmm. Yeah. Some of those things took quite a lot of takes. Yeah, some of them. Now we didn't do very many takes with Elvis. Really? No, he liked to he liked to sing it one time and go on to the next song. Hmm. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. What tunes did you do with Elvis? Oh, I did uh, just about everything he made from '65 till till he died. Yeah. I didn't do the, the things they cut down in Memphis. 
Well, I mean, the things you they did, did at America. Yeah. I know, didn't you? You know, I, I was a thumb picker like, like Jerry Reed, and I got to where I was playing thumb pick on a lot of, a lot of stuff. I did on Von Gosden. I can tell by the way you dance. You're going to love me too nice. That's me playing the thumb pick oh, okay. on that. I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> As a matter of fact, last year, they, the National Thumb Picker Hall of Fame up in Central City, Kentucky, that's where Moyle Travis was born and raised, mm. uh, inducted me into the Hall of Fame up there. How neat. Yeah, yeah, it really was very neat. So now when you look back at some of the sessions you did with Elvis, are you heard on, uh, is there any particular ones you like uh, your, your role in that you can hear? Uh, yeah, but I can't tell you any of them right now. It's been a while back. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you were on yeah. Burn in Love, I think. Yeah, yeah, the yeah, fact is I, I mixed Burn in Love. You did? Yeah, I mixed that, that whole album. Oh, I didn't know uh, that. Moody Blue I mixed, and the Memphis Boulevard album, I mixed that out in Murfreesboro. Really? What was that like, the mixing aspect? He, he was going to come out there. He flew into Simona that night, in the uh, Lisa Marie, and he called uh, Felton Jarvis and uh, said, how's it going? And said, "Oh, Chip's got it under control, man. It sounds great." He said, "Well, I, 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 if it sounds good, I said I'm gonna go back to Memphis then. <laughs> he didn't want to come out there anyway. Want <laughs> to go home? He didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Once he sung it, that he was through with it, you know. You know, one thing about Elvis, I'm curious about. I wonder if you had any experience with." Um, Every once in a while, you see a picture of him playing a guitar or up behind the drums or another instrument. Was he pretty musical besides singing? Well, you know, he played on, uh, they tried to cut One Night With You, One Night With You, and uh, they called a break. Scotty and DJ and several other play people went outside the studio. Elvis picked up the guitar and, and started playing do da do da tick tong and the, somebody, producer, said, hey, that sounds great, let's cut that. That's the way it was, and he played guitar on it. Is that right? Yeah. He played guitar on the real early stuff at Sun, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, played rhythm guitar. Yeah, then. right. He could play yeah. a little piano, too. Very interesting. And, uh, I love gospel music. Mm. He, he uh, um, Sam Phillips always told Scott, he said, Scott, don't play any of that uh, Chet Atkins stuff or that stuff like, he said, if you weren't so cheap and you'd hire another guitar player, it wouldn't, I wouldn't have to play that, try to fill up all the holes. <laughs> <laughs> Scotty got all over Sam all the time. Well, what's interesting is, you know, just how powerful Scotty's riffs are behind oh, Elvis. Boy. Oh, unbelievable to they me. They really were. I think it, if it hadn't have been for Scotty, there would never have been an Elvis. Mm -hmm. You may be right. You know, I just don't think it would have ever happened. Mm. Not Scotty as big as had so much fire in that guitar that 
Those records just were powerful. Well, they just jump alive. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and nothing against Elvis, but there was a couple of times on a couple of those records where when you got to that break where Scotty does his little solo thing, it oh, seems to bring it back wow. to life. Yes. Uh, just, uh, yeah, I'm totally with you oh. on that. And I, you know, what's interesting to me is I picked up some of those Sun records where he was playing country music before he met Elvis. You know, oh, he did yeah. a couple of those. And he had that, you could tell oh, it was Scotty. Every bit you know, of it. Every, oh, all every, the way through. I yes, love that. Scott is one of my dearest friends. I go see him. He's 80. 85 years old now. Is that right? Just just turned 85, mm -hmm. yeah. He, he, you know, he doesn't play anymore, but... Is he still up, up on Blueberry Hill? Yeah. yeah. Okay, <laughs> I got to see him up there once. Yeah, oh man, he's just the sweetest guy. Mm. That's the truth. I told him I was going to come up this week, but I hadn't felt worth a flip, so I hadn't been anywhere. Mm. With some great stuff you guys oh, have done. Oh, boy. Some mm. great stuff. Scott is the one that got me on the Elvis Sessions. Oh, is that right? Yeah, he told Elvis, said, this is a kid in town that we got to start using. <laughs> and, he, and it was me. <laughs> oh, man, it was so good. Now, did you play on those soundtracks during that time? Too? Yeah, on oh, the, okay. oh, cause some of them were so bad. Mm. I hate to say that, but they were. No gut telling how what would have happened to Elvis's career. Yeah. And he'd been willing to cut any outside song that came along that was great. Yeah. Even on Burning Love, I got a call from Freddie Beanstalk. We're considering recording Burning Love with Elvis, but we'll need to get half the publishing. I said, no, thank you. He said, what do you mean, no, thank you? It's an Elvis. I said, I don't care who it is. I don't have to give up any publishing. I don't need the money. Forget about yeah. it. And he said, well, now, you know, we, we probably won't do it. I said, I don't care. If the song is there, somebody will find it. Don't worry about it. Yeah. And then I got to, I told Beckham, we're not going to do this. And he said, then they're not going to cut it. I said, they've already cut it. And he said, how do you know? I said, Beanstalk would not have called me had they not already. That's, that's exactly right. Sure, said, smart kid. And he said, no, you're wrong. I said, well, just sit right there. I got yeah. on the phone in his office and called Felton. I said, Felton, have you done Burning Love with Elvis? He said, yeah, and it's fantastic. It's the next single. I said, well, Freddie Beanstalk's trying to get half the publishing. He said, screw him. You don't have to give it up. It's going to be the next single. Mm-hmm. And there you are. And you kept it. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, he cut three of Jerry Reed's songs, and then Beanstalk called him and said, uh, Hey, Jerry, we're, gonna, we're thinking about cutting uh, Alabama Wild Man and uh, two other songs. Guitar Man. And Jerry said, uh, yeah, you're a guitar man. Jerry said, Great, man, I wish you would. That'd be, that'd be great. He said, but we, we got to have, you know, Elvis never cut anything without getting publishing on it. He said, well, you can't do that with mine. Of course, they'd already cut, they'd, we'd already cut them, you know. Jerry just backed, backed him in the corner, you know, and said, I'm not, I'm not giving, giving publishing up. That's, it's kind of an interesting aspect of the music publishing where they sort of 
would strong arm some folks into giving up the publishing, huh? Yeah. And the, the idea is that they would what pay up front an amount of money for the publishing, and then they would then keep all the royalties. Is that basically how that works? Well, oh, they wouldn't pay up front. No. Oh no. No. Well, how would they get the publishing? Like for example, on when Freddie called you about uh, burning. Well, you want me to sign? I have a publishing doing. Oh, just sign it off. Yeah, and forget it. Yeah, what would yeah. be the purpose of that? Yeah. Anyway. Huh. Yeah, they are. I think. You got to be careful. Yeah, they were, on the, they were on the shady side of the tree. <laughs> Copyrights are annuities in my, in my mind. The copyright's an annuity. Right. And the copy, songs are like children to me in a way. Mm. I would no more cut up one of my kids. Mm. You know, they're sure not going to cut my, my song in half to give some. They'd come in the studio with a set list of songs that they already had cleared to get publishing on. Oh. And a lot of times I'd speak up and say, hey, let's cut so-and-so-and-so-and-so. Boy, they would go into a rage. Because they didn't have publishing on. <laughs> they hated me because I was looking for things, you know, always that felt good and I knew would no, make that, it, that Elvis would enjoy doing, yeah. you know. Did he ever do any of those or did oh. they always shot him down? Yeah, yeah, we did uh, Too Much Monkey Business and all, a lot of those things. It's a great tune. <laughs> yeah, they didn't crazy. like it. No. <laughs> they didn't like it when I made a suggestion, let's do this and do that. Oh, man. <laughs> I have a question. Yes, sir. How much longer do you think? Oh, th this is way more than I ever expected. I really well, appreciate I really your time. I really need to get back to the house. I've got a meeting out there. Well, I am so grateful. I hope I can communicate that to you guys. Thank you very much. Oh, this yeah. We, enjoy we enjoyed it. And we're going to round out this uh, segment on recordings with hearing from Scotty Moore once again. And he worked with Elvis on You're So Square, Baby, I Don't Care. So we're going to hear him tell the story of that song and working with Elvis. You also tell a good story of um, "You're So Square, Baby, I Don't Care." Uh, I last year when I met you, I said, "Was it Billy?" On Bill, on Bill, yeah. yeah. Did Billy play the bass on it? Tell me that. No, Elvis played bass on it. We were we were running the song, and Bill hadn't been playing electric bass uh, very long. Cause we he finally switched to electric bass just. For traveling, I mean, the big big bass just wasn't feasible carrying around all the time. But and even though he would play guitar, he just uh, and we were playing that thing, and they always wanted to hurt this one one thing. on. I was playing already playing it on guitar, the don 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 don. He wanted the bass to do the same thing, and Bill just he just just couldn't get the feeling thing right the way he wanted. And he just found just threw the thing down in the floor and went out and got, got him a cup of coffee or something. And yeah, I just picked the bass up and just played it. You know, just like he'd been playing it all his life. He never played electric bass. But there again, that comes back to that rhythm. He had just had great rhythm and he heard something and he just was easy for him. He heard it in his head and he played it right along with me. And that's probably, if I'm not mistaken, probably the first time that he ever overdubbed. And that was still just tape to tape because we didn't have tracks yet. And we, we cut that and then he uh, uh, sang it. Thanks for listening to part one of our podcast, All About the King. 
Be sure to check back in two weeks for the conclusion, where we'll hear more from those who worked closely with Elvis.